Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. I'm joined today by Allie Ryder, the administrator of the website casebook.org, the world's largest repository of information on the Whitechapel murders, John Reese, writer and lecturer, and the engineer and co-host of the podcast From Adler to Amberley, which can be heard on RipperCast's network, and we're here to welcome Paul Begg, the author of Jack the Ripper, The Uncensored Facts, The Definitive History, The Complete and Essential Jack the Ripper, The Forgotten Victims, and The Jack the Ripper A to Z. Paul is one of the most well-known and perhaps the most well-liked Ripperologists living today, and we should all be very familiar to any regular listener to the show. Paul has been on here as a panelist more times than I can count, and he's really been one of the most encouraging supporters of RipperCast over many, many years. But we thought that it's been 14 years since he sat solo in the special guest chair, and it's time that we interview him again. Welcome, Paul. Hi. So I was looking at past episodes we've recorded, and the first time that you were on the show, it was as a co-host, I believe, and we had Steven Ryder as the guest. And then a little over a month later, you came on as the special guest, and that was back in 2008. And I don't think any of us remember what questions we asked you or what we all talked about. But rather than re-listen to that very old episode, we just kind of decided to do it all over again. Yes. Seems a good idea to me. <laughs> Except when people listen to the first one and listen to this one and hear how many times I contradict myself. As I said to you elsewhere, this show will be a little like the old TV show, This Is Your Life, without the surprise walk-ons, and that we'd like to focus more on your early years in Ripperology, uh, pre-internet days, Um, so I guess we'd be mainly covering Ripperology in the 1980s and 1990s, and also what you learned firsthand of Ripperology about the years before your appearance on the scene, if that makes any sense. Yep. As usual, this is a pretty unplanned show, so we'll just see where it goes. Now, you uh, were a local journalist prior to the publication of your first book in 1979 about mysterious disappearances called Into Thin Air. Is that correct? Well, I worked for a newspaper, yes. I was sort of went between the journalism. I started out in the journalistic side in the editorial, and then I moved um, into the advertising copywriting side, and then I moved back again, and uh, then I left. Never a very good journalist on the grounds that I didn't drive. So uh, every everywhere I was sent, I had to go on the bus, which isn't... Uh, <laughs> by the time I got there, everybody else had gone. So it wasn't the best... Uh, even back in your early uh, journalism career, did you do any writing about historical mysteries or did this just um, kind of um, something that was a, a, a hobby interest of yours that you kind of took and in, in, um, in went with with the book Into Thin Air? No, uh, I'd been interested in um, in historical mysteries for as long as I can remember. I've said in the past, not necessarily on Rippercast, but um, my parents bought me a a book about the kings and queens of England. And it began with 
William the Conqueror in 1066. And I wasn't particularly interested in in all the kings and queens who followed that. I thought to myself, there's got to be who, who was there before him. And so I wanted to, to, to find that out. And my parents weren't particularly into that sort of thing. But eventually they found, um, I think what it was more or less a little pamphlet, really, that listed some kings prior to that. Uh, that included Alfred the Great and so forth. And I was really pleased to get that. But, of course, what I wanted to know was who came before the first king in that one and gradually went back. It was always a matter of trying to, uh, wanting to know what wasn't in the book rather than what was and and trying to ascertain the the history that way. I always liked... Uh, from that always like sort of mysteries, but I wasn't so much interested in solving the mystery uh, or, or fight, looking for a resolution to the mystery, but I was more interested in assembling the facts. So when it came to uh, this point in my life and I thought I really would like to write a book and I had a ton of of, of books that I used to buy secondhand um, on mysteries of all sorts, from UFOs and the Bermuda Triangle and all that sort of rubbish, uh, straight through, and to to, to, to more serious uh, areas like the Man in the Iron Mask and King Arthur and the Princes in the Tower and that sort of thing. And so I was looking at, and I thought, I people who disappeared kind of just interested me because. It was something that you could assemble the facts around. You might never know what happened to the person, but you could you could collect the facts and, and, and find out what the whole real story was, because so many of these stories had been uh, changed and enhanced and, and made more, more theoretically made more mysterious by various authors. And they'd appeared in magazines and newspapers and so forth as um as stories and so i wanted to take it back and it was a long job just going back from one one account to the to, to the one before that and then to the one before that it was hard work before the internet came along the result was into thin air and by that time i was working for a publisher and um it happened that quite by chance uh Somebody saw me with the with, with the manuscript of the book and asked to take a look and they saw it and after a short conversation and they bought it and, and uh, it was published. I think it's pretty hard to find now, um, well out of print. Um, but uh, in it, you um, attempt to debunk some of the more supernatural explanations uh, given for such events, like you said, as the Bermuda Triangle and Mary Celeste, um, which is another book that you uh, followed up with. Essentially, you approached these cases as a historical researcher, from what I can gather. And when there's conflicting accounts, you apply a bit of logic to arrive at what you believe is the most plausible explanation. And this is pretty much the same method you've stuck to. Uh, in your approach to the Whitechapel murders, yes, I I, I think that the um, the subject that, that really grabbed me most 
uh, was what I, I would say is King Arthur, but not specifically King Arthur. I was I became very interested in the period of British history that followed the, um, the the departure of the Romans, which is traditionally dated to 410 AD. And for the 200 years that followed that until the uh, the usual dates that are given for the arrival of the the Anglo-Saxons, the English. Um, and I was interested in, in those, really interested in those two centuries. And so um, I I read practically everything I, and, and still have read everything that I can lay my hands on. Um, but also I, I was looking at serious uh, academic papers and I sort of graduated to uh, to, to that level of studying the, the the background to everything that was going on at the time, and I learned then a considerable amount about uh, historical methodology. So it was basically just the application of of source analysis and things of that nature to um, more uh, popular historical events like the the Whitechapel murders. Which, uh, as I say, I think there's there's uh, which we'll come to in due course, I expect. But uh, I think there's a lot more about that. It's it's not just about who was Jack the Ripper. That's the is and always has been the least important aspect of the case for me. But it's applying the historical one's historical knowledge to the to the subjects and yeah so therefore i've i've sort of fairly stuck to that to that routine so after into thin air was published because the book the uncensored facts is put out by a different publisher right uh oh yes no, into thin air was david and charles and right uh, yeah um, the um did you just decide after the into thin air was uh published that you would um, start the Ripper book next, or was it was it suggested to you, or how did how did that kind of come about? Well, that came about because I first of all I'd had uh, an interest in the Ripper that went back oh really a long way. I I have a very vague memory of seeing what I now know was probably a late night program, uh, you know, about 10 o'clock at night show, um, which was a the tail end of a news program uh, in those days. And there were, there were some people talking on that about, uh, about the Jack the Ripper case. And that was really the first time I think I had come, uh, come across the case and I think Don Rumbler was on it and uh, who was the sort of the junior voice at the time um, and so I, I had then bought the odd book every now and again like Donald McCormick's when it came out in the early 70s and Dan Farson's book and, and uh, Robin O'Dell's uh, all of which I've still got and and the numerous editions of Don's book. And then it came to coming close to the uh, to the centenary of the murders. Now I'd been writing for 
some magazine called a, a part work magazine called the unexplained i'd been writing about historical mysteries of various sorts for that so i'd written about king arthur and robin hood and so forth um and it i i knew that there was a gap in the market for the ripper that, that hadn't been filled and i should go back just one step because it's strangely interesting i suppose in a little way is that because i was born and bred in cardiff uh which is where mary kelly is supposed to have uh, gone and uh she was uh, supposed to be working in, in Cardiff, what is now Cardiff Royal Infirmary, and which is where I was I actually physically came into the world there. So in the same place as Mary Kelly is supposed to have been. I don't think for a moment she was, but nevertheless, I became quite interested in Mary Kelly. Uh, and being rather naive at that time, I found out as we now know that she her husband was killed in a mining accident and uh, she was left without anything and had to turn to prostitution and that kind of and and from that the ripper's knife and that horrified me and i thought at that stage that a book about the life of mary kelly alone would have been a great book and that idea had stuck with me for some time and of course as i got to know more about the case realized that we knew next to nothing about Mary Kelly, so a book about her life wasn't really uh, on the cards. But um, I then, by the time we were getting towards 88, I realized that nobody, believe it or not, had actually written about the investigation. Nobody had done what interested me, which was collecting the, the basic facts of the story. Even Don Rumblow's book, which was then the finest of the Ripper books available, um, he had concentrated, the, the bulk of that book was about a discussion of the suspects. And I wanted to get away from the suspects. That, as I said, they didn't really interest me very much. And he'd only devoted a, a, a small amount of his book to the, to the murders and to the, the, the police investigation. And so that's the angle that I, I took. It was then enormously difficult, uh, or at least I found it enormously difficult, to interest a publisher in a Jack the Ripper book that didn't deal with the suspects. All the publishers that I contacted and I contacted an awful lot were interested in the idea of a, a book about Jack the Ripper what with the centenary and, and, and everything like that but they didn't want the kind of book that I wanted to do and so I'd worked my way through the alphabet and got as far as R when Jeremy Robson of Robson Books um, was brave enough to see the uh, the argument that I was making and he bought the book and uh, I also made the choice at that time to use the advance payment that you get for a book or used to get before you uh, set pen to paper um, to buy a complete set 
of the Home Office in Scotland Yard files. So myself and unbeknownst to me, uh, Stuart Evans, uh, we both had sets of the, the files and we were able to spend far more time with the files and, uh, and seeing what they said and studying them than uh, had been possible for other people before. So we became quite, uh, became, became quite better off than most people had in the past by not only having access to the files, but literally having access to them at home and uh, where they could be consulted over a sandwich and uh, a cup of tea. So that's how the the, uh, the uncensored facts came about. When you were talking um, about purchasing books as they would come out on the case, it, it really is a different world from what I can see than what we see now. I mean, when because essentially from what, what I can figure out, there weren't that many. I mean, you would might might have but prior to your book what, what do you imagine there there might have been like 10 other books that had been written oh. about the ripper at that time i mean we had I you had uh stephen knights obviously and well, collins and rumbelows and... yeah you had leonard matters from 1929 if you were lucky enough to get a copy right uh then you would have had william stewart which uh you probably wouldn't have had. I certainly didn't. I've actually only acquired a Stuart uh, lately because it's a, <laughs> as we all know, it's a very expensive collector's item. Uh, and then you had Woodhall, and then you came up to 1959 with McCormick, 65, I think it was, with Cullen and Odell. And then you had Stephen Knight, and you had uh, Don Rumbelow, and you had Richard Whittington Egan's. Uh, Little Red uh, book about the suspects as well. So there was a very tiny number, really, of books. Um, and I had a, a little, little tiny bookcase, just um, a, a desk one. And uh, my ripper books were in there next to next to my typewriter on a desk. And I used to look at that and think, gosh, one day my book will be amongst them. <laughs> But when you were preparing to write your book around um, the centenary, then you had, at the same time as you were writing the facts, you had Fido working on his book. You had Skinner and Howells um, doing the Ripper legacy. Obviously, the centenary got a lot of people, you know, interested in the case um, and preparing their books for publication. But how did you hook up? Prior to your book being published, how did you hook up to, to um, these other folks who were also of that generation first, um, you know, researching and preparing a publication of their books? How did I was speaking to Allie earlier this morning and she had made the comment that there wasn't really a ripperologist community back then as we know it today. Uh, prior to the Cloak and Dagger Club and things like that, did you send send off letters? I mean, you think uh, Skinner and Fido both in um, the Uncensored Facts. So how did you all just kind of network in, in those early days? Well, it, with um, with Keith, I think it it was 
Of course, I was lucky in that all their books came out before mine. So uh, their books were out and uh, on the shelves in 1987. So mine came out in 88. So there was a time between uh, reading their, where their books could be read and my manuscript didn't have to be delivered. So I could nick all the stuff that was in their books and get it into my book first, um, mm. <laughs> but, which I didn't do, of course, uh, but uh, not without crediting them because uh, they would have killed me afterwards. But Keith, I think I got in touch with, I can only assume that I wrote a letter uh, to his publisher uh, because I think it was over the medical records of Montague Truitt's mother. That's what how I got in contact with Keith, and he got back in contact with me because I'd found something that he hadn't got. I'd always rib him that the great researcher, and I found something he didn't. <laughs> so doesn't that make me a clever boy? But uh, he he was then extremely helpful towards me and I think he had possibly already made contact with Martin um, but certainly I think we would possibly all have got together at some point um, because of a there was a TV documentary that was made in America for the centenary year with Peter Ustinov. And uh, we were all involved in, in that in one way or another. And so Martin was on that and uh, I was historical advisor to that program. And so that's how we got to know Martin and Keith, I think, basically. Do have a photograph of um, Martin Keith and myself with uh, Jan Leeming, who was the UK host of that programme. Uh, so we all look very young. And so Keith would have been the first ripperologist um, that you would have made contact with. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, yes, all the others were sort of... Um, uh, hero kind of, <laughs> well, not hero worship, but you know they they were they were the names of uh, they were the you know they were the experts. They were people who uh, appeared on programs and, uh, and were mentioned in occasional newspaper articles and things like that. They and, were the. And so, when your book was published, uh, how was it received by by your peers? Um. It appears to have been received extremely well. Um, I was very lucky. I, I really actually don't quite know why, but we, but it was, it was very well received and seems to have sold sufficiently well for Robson to have been very happy with it. And it very quickly acquired a, a reputation to the extent that, um, I was invited with more seasoned uh, writers to to attend uh, crime writing events uh, in uh, abroad in in uh, in places like uh, 
Italy and France and so forth. And so um, there was some television work came along, a television documentary that was largely based on my book, albeit that it was about Kosminski, but uh, which I, I was, was not a suspect I was promoting, but which I knew more about. Uh, so, yeah, it was I was very, very lucky. I assume it was from that early association with Skinner and Fido that um, you guys um, decided to get together and start pr- producing the A to Z. Yeah, um, eventually Keith and I, as soon as the um, uh, the, the Ripper time, eighteen eighty eight, uh, nineteen eighty eight was was sort of uh, receding, we thought it would be fun to do a book, and we had both managed to accumulate a fair amount of information about uh, the operation of uh, the police at that time, and we had been lucky enough to connect with uh, with the police quite well and been uh, invited to look at the archives uh, that they'd got and so on. And we thought a good idea if we could do a history of the, the CID, the, the, the centenary of which or whatever it was, was coming up. And so um, we approached Scotland Yard and... Uh, they said fine, and they gave us a desk and a and a place to work and to meet with people like Maggie Bird and so forth. And we wrote this book uh, about the, the the history of the uh, CID at Scotland Yard, and we were able to incorporate a lot of the information that we'd acquired. Um, and f- that book was published by Headline, and I was invited out to lunch as uh, sounds very grand to go out for lunch with your publisher and uh, we were sitting in a restaurant what it basically means is that you your publisher takes you out to a posh restaurant where you don't have a chance to eat your food because you're being <laughs> asked questions all the time so as you're answering the questions your meal goes cold and becomes virtually inedible so then by the time your publisher is finished eating their dinner uh, your book uh, your your plate is taken away and you you end up with a dessert and i was in this process of, uh, and i was asked what is your next book going to be about and we hadn't got one and i couldn't think of one and but my wife had mentioned at one point, that what we needed, what, what the Jack the Ripper area needed, was a sort of encyclopedia that would tell you who all the people and, and places were. And I thought, well, nobody's ever going to buy this. Uh, and I really, in, in desperation, um, as a joke, literally as a joke, mentioned it to the publisher, and as I was describing this, I could see that she was she was buying it both figuratively and and literally. Mm-hmm. And by the time we left the restaurant, um, the contract was you know it had all been all but been signed, as uh, things could happen that quickly in publishing in those days. You didn't have to go through 
committee meetings and everything like you do today. And so that's how it happened. And as I was walking uh, away from that meeting, I suddenly thought, my God, what have you let yourself in for? This this, this is a, a major project. And so I'd always had in mind that this was something that Keith and I would be be working on. Um, and uh, I had to go and tell Keith, well, Keith, your next book's going to be the Jack the Ripper A to Z. And mm -hmm. it, I think it was Keith suggested that we contact Martin. And so we went to Martin and then that's how it, uh, how the book came into existence, really just as a, a throw, but what started out really as a, as a, a jokey throwaway. So never ever dismiss the silliest ideas that you can come up with because they will stick with you for the rest of your life. I would like to ask a question here since we're talking about the, the format of the A to Z a little bit. Like, do you find, did you find it easier to write an encyclopedic for like a, an encyclopedia formula book versus a more narrative structure book? Or did you find it easier to write? Cause I, I like there's different, I, as a, I have a very editorial brain. And so I was wondering if it was more of a challenge, like, especially when you're working with more people, I would think like, did you farm out, different parcels of the A to Z and everybody sort of worked on their own little individual things. So the whole thing was a bit easier to break it up or like how, which, which way did you find easier to write? Well, the, the difficulty with the A to Z is that you can't divide it up very easily because you can be working on one entry uh, for somebody who comes under A and you might have to cross-reference somebody who comes under W or X or whatever. And so when you're putting the book together, you can end up flitting all over the place. Uh, and it's it's really, really hard because you can't divide up the labor. So really the, the best way we found of doing things, which fell, uh, fell reasonably well between the three of us, is that Martin uh, wrote... It's so because we we were very concerned that it the book had the same uh, writing feel throughout, and so you weren't going to suddenly find you're jumping around with, uh, with with different writing styles. So one person would be responsible for the text. I would invariably hand across. Uh, areas of, of things that I'd written up for the for, for Martin so that he had the information at his fingertips uh, and uh, and Keith being the researcher was largely the one who went out and tracked down the original source materials and and so forth which also worked quite well because we all lived in different parts of the country so Keith was London based Martin was uh, was in the West Country and I was uh, in Leeds, so uh, which is in, in the north of England. So it's uh, it worked out quite well to do to do it that way. Working now with with uh, Deb Zariff and and um, Sean is a different process altogether, um, and it's uh, that well, it's still works the same way we're all working on the same entries and so forth but at least we've now got 
computers and um, databases and we, we <laughs> the information is accessible the same information can be accessed by all three of us so it's not all trying to work with uh, fax machines and the post uh, and things like that which it was when we started the a to z i know throughout the years and subsequent editions um, especially when martin moved to the united states the um contribution like it wasn't split evenly between the three of you it was is was for the first edition was um the workload pretty evenly split because we have a, a listener question steve rivers asked if while you were collaborating with martin now that you've described your guys's process was were there any points of contention or disagreements amongst the three of you as far as the content of any particular entries um, and and how did you resolve those so this well, kind of I a suppose. two-part question because i'm not sure yeah. if maybe one person's voice was the definitive one and then and then martin wrote it up and keith uh did research you know how did contentious uh aspects of the entries get resolved i think the first I'm, i it's hard to remember um going back to the to the first editions the basically i think the funny thing is is that like many um double acts or or triple acts in this case um we all got on very well but we all basically had we're, we're all different people and we have different lives i mean we don't we didn't we weren't in a position to get together and and sing beers together all the time if if we were ever in london together uh then we would would very often get together and and do things like that but i i think that um we were very lucky from my point of view i had uh, a lot in common with martin and also had a lot in common with keith and keith tended to get on with martin in things that um that were you know where maybe i wasn't quite so involved and and uh similarly so i think one example uh that maybe answers your question is that martin was always um he he was he'd make up his mind quite quickly and he was really only interested or he's not only interested but was mainly interested in the identity of the killer so he tended not to be interested in something like dare i say the maybrick diary when that came along martin immediately concluded that the thing was a fake and at that point had no interest in it whatsoever whereas whilst i shared martin's view uh, i was also shared keith's view that this was a, an artifact this was a tangible thing this was something that somebody created somewhere at some time and although it may have absolutely no bearing on the ripper case at all being a fake uh we wanted to know where it came from 
and and Keith uh, repeatedly reminds me that I said uh, way back then uh, I said um, you know we we want to know who wrote it when they wrote it why they wrote it and none of these questions have been answered and they still haven't all these years later although people will argue about that but uh, they really still haven't been uh, answered and we uh, so I had that interest with Keith and that enabled us to do things um, like uh, we could work with lots of different people like Shirley Harrison and Paul Feldman or Patricia Cornwell or whoever it may be because we tried very hard not to have an interest in in the theories now I, I wasn't interested in the theories anyway never had been as I've said so it wasn't too difficult for me to work with other people who had a firm theory it didn't mean that I had to share that theory so that would be one area I suppose where there would have been some slight dissent between Martin and the rest of us of course um, I suppose the biggest bugbear that Martin and I had really was our, our difference of opinion with regard to uh, Cohen and Kosminski. I do not accept and did not accept the Cohen argument at all. Uh, and Martin didn't accept, <laughs> accept the idea that Kosminski at all. But even in that respect, working together uh, and having to, to work around each other's opinions without kind of um, stamping on each other's corns, just sort of gently treading over them, uh, meant that you were able to focus a little bit more carefully on on that uh, those particular theories. So that that even worked to our advantage. So it was it was very useful. We we all tended to get on very well together. But as I say, we we weren't going out socialising. Um, all the time because we lived in different parts of the country. So um, there's been several editions of the, the A to Z um, from the original edition in 91 and then um, the most recent uh, edition, the late noughties, I think it would have been. Um, and yeah. obviously as the you know um, uh, knowledge of the field has expanded, um, the um, you know, there's only a finite amount of pages you can have in the book, a number of entries. So I know that um, one of the things you, you started taking out was entries with individual ripperologists and things like that as, as the field expanded as well. Um, so how would you decide what goes into um, the A to Z? Um, and do you think that those older editions, the A to Z, are now outdated or do you think they still have um, worth for a researcher? I think the, the the older editions still have uh, worth for the researcher. Uh, obviously, it depends on what they're researching. Certain parts of uh, of areas have, have changed and uh, and so forth. But uh, it's always best to be up to date uh, with things. But of course, uh, subject changes all the time. So even when this new version comes out, there are going to be areas which will have been written like now and. Uh, it's likely that by the time the book hits the shelves, that is going to that bit is going to be out of date. Um, 
what I've done for for this uh, this edition is that it's completely rewritten and uh, redesigned so that we have now got uh, where where it's where, where it's possible to have it. We, we, we've got a sort of uh, biography details of, of you know when some where somebody was born and when and who their parents were and uh anything like that whether it's relevant or not because we can't decide now what's what might be relevant when the book's published so there may be stuff there that somebody's going to look at and they're going to say well what the hell are they put that in for doesn't mean anything but but how do you know whether somebody's father uh, and what the father did, whether that's going to have a bearing in some way on that, on the, 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 what the subject did. And we can't know those things. So we've got that and a little bit about brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and, uh, children and so forth. Now, are you, are you doing that as far as if that information currently exists or, or, is like Debs um, going out, oh, we don't know who or this guy's father is or any of the, you know, and sending her out to find out those things. I mean, are you guys researching these um, kinds of details for people that, that it wasn't available, that no one's looked into before, or are you just taking the ones that we've, no, we're, we've we're, gotten we're looking, so far? We're looking into it for uh, for everybody. If, if, uh, if somebody's in there and they have an entry, that's the that goes in. It's wow. uh, that, that's the templated part of the book that goes that that starts it off, that kickstarts it. We then have a biography, insofar as it's possible to com- you know put one together that gives the person's life before wow. and after uh, before and after the, the the ripper, so that you get a a slight feel for who the person was and anything else that they did in their lives that um, sounds awful to say, you know, worthy of comment, but you know what I mean? It's just, just to give a, a, the, the uh, a little history of the person uh, when we can. And then the Ripper connection, uh, which is every aspect of their involvement in, in the Ripper story. And, We've also tried wherever possible um, and also where uh, it's reasonable to to actually put in the source uh, of that. And there there was some, as we worked along, there there have been uh, questions that have arisen, like whether we included footnotes for each entry and uh, or combined footnotes at the end of the book or things like that, or didn't have footnotes at all. So uh, it's, it's a completely redesigned book and um, I'm, well, I mean, I'm extremely fortunate to, uh, to, to have Sean and Debs working with me on this and Keith. Uh, and of course, um, what Debs does, well, goes without saying. Anybody in the Ripper field uh, knows uh, knows Debs and knows what how good she is. Now uh, she's just fun of information. The so 
obviously adding this additional information, even if it's just a few lines to these uh, biographical entries, uh, uh, all combined, you would think it would massively increase the size of the book. Are you guys having to cut? I think John kind of alluded this to, in his question. Are you guys having to drop uh, certain things that might have appeared in the last edition f from this new edition? And if so, like he had mentioned, you guys no longer discuss uh, ripperologists who are living. I believe that was the rule set um, for yeah. this last edition. Are there a new rules put in place just because of the? Sh it sounds like you know it would. If not, it would just it would be a massive book, even compared to the last one. Yeah, that's that's Adam's problem. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that when uh, when when we know the full full weight. Of, you know how how many the wordage of the book, because uh, obviously it, it changes uh, lit, quite literally on a daily basis. So uh, it's it's hard uh, as. As far as the dropping entries are concerned, um, we haven't got to the point where we've gone through. They're, they're, it's inevitable that there are going to be entries which are going to be removed. It's inevitable that certain entries are going to have information taken out because, to be honest, uh, you, you can have somebody whose involvement in the Ripper case was that they sneezed and it startled one of the police investigators. And that's all they, that's all they did. Not literally, obviously. I can't, I don't know anybody who did that, but I'm just trying to say some, give some indication of, uh, of some extremely minor role that they played. And they have an entry, but they're an important person historically. So their their entry actually runs four and a half pages. And then Ripper connection, he sneezed. It, so that entry has to basically either be cut completely uh, or, um, you know, really just left down to he sneezed. Why well, uh, Ripper cast appeared in the last uh, A to Z and, and I give you guys my permission, you know, if it, if you have to cut something out to make a little bit room for more of the genealogy detail, feel free, you know, if it'll save space, you can remove Ripper cast entry and, and I, I won't be upset. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's kind and generous, but uh, Ripper cast is in the book. You see, the thing is that, uh, one of the problems that, that you've got with this, and what really interests me about the Ripper, is that the history of Jack the Ripper does not just involve the, the, the murders uh, or the murder time. It evolved after all of that time. So there's a, there was a train called Jack the Ripper. There's a, a fa the, the famous U.S bomber in the Second World War called Jack the Ripper. There's an area of land in Canada, uh, a river or a stream called Jack the Ripper. Uh, this has impacted on the world in so many different ways over the, the last 130 years to the point where you have got as John discovered the last time we chatted, 
everything from a toilet spray called Jack the Ripper to a strain of cannabis called Jack the Ripper. It's just embedded itself in, in our society. And all of that part of the history goes in the book because that's what it's all about. So it's not just about the murders and the aftermath and, and that sort of stuff. It's everything else as well, right down to the times when Jack the Ripper was used in advertising and where the people, a, a, a sweet manufacturer was reputed to be making uh, sugar knives for children called Jack the Ripper's it's all part of the, the story and so all of these things go in insofar as one put an entry in it. and and obviously things like Rippercast and Casebook and JTR forums and uh, Ripperologist and Ripperana and all of these things they are all part of the developing story about Jack the Ripper they are all part of how we got here today and um, so you can't leave those things out. So Ripper cast definitely goes in. Trouble well, what I want to know is, did the authors of the A to Z try the Jack the Ripper cannabis strain, you know, for research purposes? Uh, well, I, I have to be disappointingly <laughs> uh, painful here and say I can't speak for my co-authors, but I haven't remotest idea. <laughs> I had not heard that one. That's interesting. I'd heard of most of the others, but I had not actually heard of that. Uh, that it's one. apparently quite uh, quite strong. Uh, hence, I suppose the uh, the um, being given the name Jack the Ripper. Oh, I'll, I'll make the sacrifice. I'll, I'll try to I'll try to hunt that out and uh, <laughs> and do the research for for you know purely research purposes. Well, of course, Accuracy yes. I mean, I, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't for a moment think that you do it for pleasure, uh, <laughs> or fun and profit. But uh, yeah. But what I was just going to say though that the one thing about the, the authors uh, is that um, we had to drop living authors uh, from the book because, to be perfectly honest. As time passed and as um, self-publishing came along and things, it was possible for an author, or it was possible to change that to somebody to write uh, the the most awful piece of trash. Uh, and we would therefore have to give that person an entry in the book. And it... It was a waste of time and valuable space to give Joe Bloggs an entry when they had done nothing to deserve it. And so right. um, we restricted it to, to those authors who died. And now it's having to be restricted to those authors who have made a significant contribution uh, because, really, to be honest, you can't just keep going on forever there are what uh, well, I, I can't remember at the last count but there are several hundred books about Jack the Ripper literally just about Jack the Ripper and you can't put in the author of every every one of those uh, so it's been considered that we just put in a listing of all Jack the Ripper books 
to date. So probably uh, we might do all Jack the Ripper books up to 2020 or really? maybe even up to 2022. Wow. Just as a list at the back of the book. But that, you know, even wordage might mean that we even dump that because uh, we may not be able to get that in. So we do have a discussion ongoing about trying to do something online uh, in which information that doesn't go into the book and and what additional material and so forth uh, could go on a an A to Z online um, thing. But obviously it would be uh, whether that's done as a freebie or whether it's charged for uh, or whatever to, to gain access. I really don't know. I mean, it's almost coming to the point where I would like to think that um, Debs and Sean would continue the book uh, and, uh, and you know, I could take a back seat um, and then I'm not getting any younger, so you know, the day is going to come when I'm not going to be around any longer. And if anybody's still interested in the A to Z, then it would be good for, you know, for those people to be carrying it on. So uh, I'm not really that desperately. Well, I'm, you know, I am really interested in, in, in seeing how, how the, where the book goes to from here. Uh, and and how it might develop with an online presence and so forth, but I'm not sure that I'll be particularly actively involved that much in anything of that kind because I'm just uh, I I think I'd like to uh, enjoy what remains of my retirement really because it is quite a lot of work involved in in doing this. This point will mark the end of part one of our chat with Paul Bagg, taking it up in a roundabout way to the year 1991. We'll return for part two for the years that saw the emergence of the Maybrick Diary, Paul's association with Patricia Cornwell, and where he thinks the field of ripperology is headed today. So stay tuned.